Hello, welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. Thank you so so much to everybody that's been listening, streaming the podcast. I'm so grateful to all the new listeners that are here. This has been one of the strongest periods of listeners the podcast history. I'm so incredibly grateful to everybody that's been enjoying and giving such incredible feedback on the podcast. And in that vein, I wanted to share once again some of my favorite reviews. I've been asking everybody to please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And there was a few funny good ones this week that I wanted to share with people. M's 2170, a very enjoyable listen. Well, thank you. Enjoyableness is definitely a huge goal for me on the podcast. And then a couple that were on theme. One was Greggy TB, who said, love the podcast, iconic, informational, and insightful. Wow, incredible. Really enjoy the music clips, blah, blah, blah. Can't wait for Mariah Carey, first of her name, breaker of records, and scaler of octaves. Also, Extina. Both good suggestions. And then, of course, my favorite review of the week from JKJ in LA that just wrote, Mariah. So, clearly, people are waiting for the MC Pop Pantheon. So, duly noted. And on this note, I'm starting a new drive. So, the way that this is going to work is you leave a review on Apple Podcasts suggesting which artists you want to see episodes on. And by the end of March, whichever artist has the most suggestions in the ratings on Apple Podcasts will be fast-tracked to an episode. So you go on Apple, you drop a review mentioning which artists you want to see me do an episode on. And by the end of March, we're going to tally them all up and fast-track the winner. So get on there. Leave your suggestions. I know a lot of people have a lot of strong feelings about episodes they want to see, and that is the way. That's the way to get it done in the Apple Podcasts review section. So that's going to be going on until the end of March. So get on it. This is also last chance to send in questions for next week's mailbag episode. Already gotten quite a bit, but I'm going to pick my favorite. So... I really love when people send them via email. You can DM them to me uh, if you have questions about pop, about Pop Pantheon, about new music, about whatever, about past episodes. I love when people get on me about rankings they disagree with and make a very impassioned and thoughtful pitch for other tiers that they think the artist should be in. Any of that stuff. The best way to do it is to email me at poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Other than that, you can also shoot us a DM and fo- please follow on social at poppantheonpod on Instagram and at DJLOUIEXIV on both Instagram and Twitter. I'll put up a sticker one more time sometime between now and when we record. And so last chance to get questions in that I could possibly answer in next week's mailbag episode. I also want to show that the Discord chat now happens the Monday after the Thursday that the episode airs. So the Discord for this upcoming episode that you're listening to right now will happen on Monday, March 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. The link for that will be in the description of this episode and will also be posted on social media. Again, Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram. Also, I wanted to remind people that every episode does have a Spotify playlist of essentials. So if you're listening to the episode and you're like, man, I loved this episode. It really got me into an artist I wasn't into before. How do I start listening and getting involved with what their discography is like in an easy to consume package? The Spotify playlist is the answer to that question. And 
The links again for that will be in the show notes of every episode and also on social media. I just also wanted to say before we get into it, thanks so much for the amazing feedback on last week's episode on the Supremes. It's again, one of my faves and I was so glad that so many people reached out and said that they learned a lot from it because I really did too. I mean, Chris is like taking us all to school. And so with that in mind, let's get into this week's episode, the conclusion to last week's, the second part of our two-parter on Diana Ross. This is Pop Pantheon Diana Ross, The Solo Years. If Diana Ross had never made another song again after her meteoric success with the Supremes in the 1960s, I think it's safe to say that we'd still be talking about her as a towering pop figure. 12 number one hits in five years, 50 million records sold, and perhaps the most successful black woman in pop music to that point. By 1970, Diana had carved out a substantial place in the annals of American pop culture. But of course, the Supremes were not where Diana's story ended. It was only the beginning, a precursor to a solo career that was by no means a straight line, but contained enough soaring highs, classic records, and truly gravity-defying comebacks to rank among the greatest, most enduring runs in pop history. Diana's solo success, though, didn't look as inevitable from the jump as it does in retrospect. Following her official departure from the Supremes in 1969, she quickly began rolling out her debut solo record, Diana Ross, one of literally five albums in her discography that she would name after herself, in 1970. Composed entirely by the then-ascendant Motown producers and songwriters Ashford and Simpson, the record leaned more heavily into the orchestral, groovy R&B of the latter-day Supremes hits like Reflections. But unlike those Supremes records, the album's lead single, Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand, was not an immediate success. In fact, it peaked at number 20 on the charts, a notable failure for the event debut single of an artist of Diana's stature. Crazy in love, this was not. The album's commercial fortunes and thus Diana's burgeoning solo career were saved, however, by a less than obvious second single. Her cover of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, an earlier smash written by Ashford and Simpson and made famous by fellow Motown act Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, didn't immediately jump out at Diana's label boss and boyfriend Barry Gordy as a hit. It contains mostly spoken word verses, and the iconic melody on the chorus doesn't even appear until the last minute of the song. But this borderline experimental, almost gospel-esque take on the classic became an unexpected smash, peaking at number one and establishing Diana's solo staying power once and for all. Following Ain't No Mountain's success, though, Diana's career and track record in the early 70s was honestly kind of wonky. When she hit it, she hit it out of the park, like with her 1973 number one smash, Touch Me in the Morning. But just as often, she'd release albums almost on a yearly cycle that made little to no impact, like 1970's Everything is Everything and 1971's Surrender. These failures can be partially owed to the fact that, at least in equal measure to her musical endeavors, Diana was in hot pursuit of movie stardom. In 1972, she 
starred as jazz legend Billie Holiday in Sydney Fury's biopic Lady Sings the Blues, earning a Best Actress Oscar nomination for her equal parts charming and surprisingly raw performance, and also scoring a number one album with the soundtrack. She followed up Blues with the romantic drama Mahogany, a less well-received film that nonetheless produced one of her signature hits of the mid-70s, the pop soul ballad Do You Know Where You're Going To, which peaked at number one in 1975. It would have been safe to say that Diana might have been in the waning days of her mainstream success by 1976. At that point, she'd been in the spotlight for nearly 15 years, an eternity in the fickle ageist world of pop music, and successfully made the transition from girl group pioneer to successful solo act to Oscar-nominated movie star. No small feats, as so many who have tried and failed before and after her can attest. But Diana's biggest and greatest solo hits were still very much ahead of her. In 1976, she scored a prescient number one with the disco-flavored Love Hangover. The then-burgeoning disco scene was just finding its footing in this period, and Love Hangover provided a new path forward for Diana, who was perfectly suited for the genre's frivolity, glamour, light touch, and connection to the gay community for which Diana was already a signature icon. In 1979, she released The Boss, an effervescent disco anthem written and produced by Ashford and Simpson that fully delivered on Diana's Studio 54 goddess potential. The song wasn't a chart topper, it peaked at number 18, but was an instant club classic that's gone on to be one of her signature hits and, most importantly, set the table for her next move, which would be her most successful yet. Following the success of The Boss, Diana approached legendary disco act Niall Rogers, then the hottest producer and songwriter in pop with his band Chic and with others, about working on new material with her. Together with Chic bassist and fellow producer Bernard Edwards, Rogers and Ross set about putting together what would become Diana's most critically acclaimed and commercially successful project yet, 1980s disco extravaganza Diana. The record stands out in Diana's catalog, not just for its signature hit records, which were some of the biggest of Diana's career, but it's perhaps also her only solo album that works as a full aesthetic idea and a reinvention in the modern pop sense of the term. For a female pop figure on the verge of her third decade to score her most successful album yet is almost unprecedented either before or after this record. That it holds up today as one of the sturdiest classics in pop history is the icing on the cake. Diana became the best-selling album of her career and produced a series of indelible disco hits, including the iconic dance floor hymn I'm Coming Out and the number one peaking Upside down. Upside down. Boy, you turn me inside out and round and round. Diana finally left Motown in 1980, ending one of the most illustrious label artist collaborations in the history of the music business, and signed a $20 million contract with RCA. The success of the Diana album sent her on a run of hits through the early to mid-80s, including the number one Endless Love and Mirror Mirror, before her chart powers began to wane in the middle of that decade. Diana consistently released albums through the early 2000s, and in 2021, she released her 25th solo album, Thank You. As a solo artist, Diana Ross has sold over 100 million records worldwide. 
Her 11th studio album, Diana, has sold more than 10 million copies itself around the world. She's had 27 top 40 singles in the US, 12 top 10s, and six number ones, placing her in a tie for fifth among female solo performers. In the UK, she's had 47 top 40 singles, 20 top 10s, and two number ones. In 1988, Diana was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Supremes. The Guinness Book of World Records notes her as having more hits than any female artist in history, with a total of 70 hit singles by their metrics. She was the recipient of the Kennedy Center Honors in 2007, a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award winner in 2012, and she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2016. Back again for part two of our series on Diana Ross is chart historian, pop critic, and host of Hit Parade, Chris Malamphy. So as we discussed, Diana has this storied run with the Supremes through the 60s that towards the end is being sort of set up as a launching pad for her solo career. And in classic, I guess, Gordy fashion, there's not a ton of lag time between the last Supreme single, Someday We'll Be Together, and Diana's solo record. I believe Someday We'll Be Together comes out in 1969, and in 1970, we are moving on to Diana's solo career. And so Diana's first solo record, it's one of, I think, maybe five self-titled records that she releases. Diana Ross loves to name records after After herself. herself. She likes (laughs) the eponymous. If you if you want girl likes the eponymous. If you like a diva trope, I mean Diana Ross knows how to like put her name front and center. So the first album called Diana Ross, the first nineteen seventy album called Diana Ross, yeah, uh, produced largely by Ashford and Simpson, right? uh, Who are who are great songwriters and later artists in their own right. They're already coming off some hits for Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, including Mm -hmm. "You're All I Need to Get By." high enough So they're already proven as songwriters by the time they get to the Diana Ross project. And they're brought in kind of late in the process. There was like a different producer who didn't work out that Barry tossed aside. Barry Gordy was micromanaging the launch of Diana as a soloist down to a fare thee well. And that's what makes the breakthrough single for Diana as a soloist so fascinating because Barry Gordy had to be convinced that it could be a hit and it wasn't yeah. reach out and touch somebody's hand, which in a way feels like the traditional lead off single that you go with. That one preceded the album. The album comes out in the summer of 1970. Reach out and touch somebody's hand is released as a single in the late winter spring of 1970. Reach out and touch. Again, peaks at number 20. That's kind of going with the formula to some extent. Like the Supremes formula? More, let's call it the Motown formula writ large. I see. It doesn't sound like a Supremes record. It's carefully tailored. It sounds like an Ashford and Simpsons record. It sounds like something that they'd been doing with Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. With a little bit of a Dionne Warwick flavor. You know, what Mm. the world needs now is Love Sweet Love. It's got that kind of 
everybody join hands and sing together kind of vibe. Very groovy right. 1970 vibe. And it right. does just okay. The record that takes Diana to the top of the charts in the fall of 1970 is a deconstruction of the Motown sound, which is what I yes. love about it. Mm. This is the reboot of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, conceived and produced by its songwriters, Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson. Right. And basically to hear Valerie Simpson tell it, they said, and this goes back to what you and I were talking about before, about what is the X factor that Diana has? They right. said, we loved Diana's speaking voice. We thought I, she I had was... a really sexy speaking voice. Mm -hmm. There are little bits of Diana's speaking voice on previous Supremes hits, like Love is Here and Now You're Gone. You close the door to your heart and you turn the key. Locked your love away from me. There ain't nothing I can do about and it. And there ain't nothing I can do about it. And there ain't nothing I can do about it. <laughs> yeah. So it isn't as if she hasn't talked on a record before, but Ashford and Simpson have the radical, I mean, really, almost avant-garde idea. We're right. going to have a record where Diana doesn't sing for several mm. minutes where she talks through the record. And so the entire first three minutes of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, the re-recording of the previous, you know, you have to hear them side by side, and I'm sure you can play them right now for people, how different these two versions sound. The Gay Terrell version, it's got this brightness and this, like, uplift to it that is just glorious. Whereas what they do with Diana on that record, it's like taking a Motown record and deconstructing it and pulling it apart. If you need me, call me. No matter where you are, no matter how far, just call my name. I'll be there in a hurry. On that you can depend and never worry. I often refer to this as one of the great delayed gratifications in yes. pop history, mm -hmm. right? Because what's the most iconic melody of Ain't No Mountain? Ain't No Mountain yeah. High right. Enough. Yeah. That, in the original Gay Terrell version, runs through the record. In the Diana version, you literally get it at the fade out. They know that you already know it, and they're going to make you wait for it. And it's so satisfying when it comes, mm -hmm. because you've already been listening to Diana do the sexy vocal, if you need me call me you know for <laughs> minutes on end i know i know you must follow the sun wherever it leads but remember if you should fall short of your desires remember life holds for you one guarantee and when the payoff finally comes, it's just this release. She's singing and almost like raising her hands to the sky. You know, yes, gospel. It's, it's, it, almost gospel style, which by the way, I would not have called anything Diana did to this no. point. She was a, not a gospel trained vocalist. She did not come up in the church. And yet this is kind of like Diana does gospel, the closest Diana does to gospel. This 
might be a stretch, but it's almost like a house record in. Sure, I hear where you're going with that. that you that's know what I mean? In the comparison. way that, like, the gratification, the drop in a traditional house record wouldn't come to you until six or seven minutes into it. Not in the modern conception of dance records that we've had in the post-EDM era, but in the way that classic house is constructed. Frankie Knuckles era house. Exactly. It reminds me of that, the delayed gratification. I love that as a DJ, you picked that up. I know you <laughs> know how that works. And yes. yeah, and it's it's the same sense of drama. You know, mm, drama. That, I mean, this record is like a fucking opera. pure drama, <laughs> yeah, pure drama, like a, beginning to end, start to finish. Mm-hmm. So that becomes her first number one hit. And, you know, I, I, I struggle a little bit in how to kind of characterize her run of albums through this early 70s period, because as I was getting out with you earlier in the conversation, we think about pop stardom in this day and age as so centered around this idea of album eras, of these statement albums that have these very defined aesthetics and also albums that sort of increasingly reveal the pop star to us or provide the illusion of revealing more layers to them. Maybe mm-hmm. they start to write their own songs. Maybe we feel like they're starting to tell us more about their personal lives. I mean, this is just like Think about Janet. Janet, great example of this. As we move through Janet's career, we get to the Velvet Rope, these personal records. Beyonce, with her self-titled album and Lemonade, you know, as they move through these solo careers, like that's the trajectory we've become used to. But I don't really feel that that's what's happening in these Diana solo records. They kind of come out yearly and they're kind of like, I don't know how to describe it. Like they just are kind of like another Diana Ross record. And sometimes they have hits and sometimes they don't. In this early... 1970s run after the self-titled album with Ain't No Mountain High Enough. You've got Surrender, whose biggest hit is number 16 peaking Remember Me. You have a record called Everything Is Everything with a number 63 peaking single called I'm Still Waiting. You've got another hit in 1973, many records down the road called Touch Me in the Morning, which I guess is one of her probably definitive number one hits from this period. But overall, you've got at least a series of records in here where there's really not a ton of traction going on. And yet her career doesn't seem to be derailed. So it's like really this dissonant thing based on how like pop stardom works today versus then. Is that how you kind of perceive them? Is that like a... Oh, totally. You know, after listening to the first record, I kind of kept trying to look for like, okay, what's the evolution that's going on here? And I was having trouble parsing it apart through these 70s records in a sense. Yeah, no, there are several macro issues with Diana's career in the 70s. First of all, on the single side, this is a one weird quirk that I often point out to people. In the 70s, Diana Ross either topped the charts or missed the top 40 entirely. Flopped, yes. Yeah, she has the weirdest pattern of hits of almost any superstar. It's like a total banger, and then she'll go two to three years between hits, and nothing will even so much as scrape the top 20 nothing yeah what is that that, is that just song choice or is that like it's song choice it's promotion it's distraction because she's also trying to be a movie star at this time right right? important so i mean by the way to touch on beyonce again if you watch either the original broadway musical dream girls or better yet the movie dream girls that came out in 2005 six with beyonce in effectively the diana ross role because you know what is dream girls but a thinly veiled romana clef of the supreme story Yes. When Dreamgirls flashes 
forward to the 70s period, you see Beyonce basically going through the stations of the cross of what Diana's going through at this time as she's starting to act in movies like Lady Sings the Blues. Mm -hmm. So there's this period where Diana, yes, she comes back with albums every six to 12 months, but they don't do a whole heck of a lot. Even on the R&B side, the hits are middling at best. And some of these records are like, they're never bad, but... They're sometimes really boring. I mean, I found yeah. myself, after the thrill of listening to that run of Supreme songs, like, mm-hmm. it's like many of the records will have a certain standout moment. I mean, obviously, Touch Me in the Morning. Yep. Touch me in the morning. Then just close the door. It just kind of felt like a factory more in the negative sense of the word. Like I just kind of felt like she was churning out material and like sometimes she would find a record that really worked for her. But for the most part, it didn't feel like any of these records had ideas behind them that like were driving them to like make you care about them beyond just, okay, here's some more Diana Ross songs. Yeah. And you know, it's weird because it's hard to predict with her in this early seventies period, what's going to hit. For example, in England, In 1971, she has a number one hit that doesn't even do much in the States called I'm Still Waiting. In the States, I'm Still Waiting peaked at number 63, (laughs) whereas in the UK, I'm Still Waiting is a multi-week number one hit. Right. It's not one of her better remembered hits. I don't think she does it live much. So like her entire persona for those first few years is frankly rather scattershot. Yes. And, and, you know, I think it's an interesting moment for pop generally because you have this explosion of these singer songwriter pop stars that are sort of defining this era, Carol King. And it's too. Joni Mitchell. Oh, Carrie, get out your artists that are writing these really personal songs that create the notion of like what we think of today as a Taylor Swift and more or less inventing the sort of like singer songwriter pop act and Diana I feel like on these early records feels kind of like stately and a little bit like untouchable as compared to some of these singer songwriter pop stars and a tad maybe passe on some level in terms of her just sort of glamour it feels a little bit stuck when you think about a Joni Mitchell or a Carole King. So, I mean, who is Diana Ross in conversation with as other pop stars? Like, is Barbara happening at the... Like, who are the contemporaries? Barbara's a good comparison. And in a way, I'm glad you brought Barbara up because... Okay, on the R&B side, the mega stars at this point are Roberta Flack. massive number one hits won Grammys like Roberta Flack is kind of the queen of this period yeah eventually you've got Shaka Khan in the form mm-hmm. of Rufus but right. that's kind of coming at it in a more funk direction tell me something good tell me that you love me yeah I think you're right to bring up Barbara Streisand because actually weirdly with her poise and show tunesy vibe and with 
you know, these heavily orchestrated records like The Way We Were. The right. Way We Were, to me, is like the flip side of something like Diana's Touch Me in the Morning. Or the theme from Mahogany, Do You Know Where You're Going yes. To, right? You could play Do You Know Where You're Going To and The Way We Were back to back. Yeah, and just for the audience's edification, Do You Know Where You're Going To is one of Diana's rare smash hits from this period that is also the uh, lead single from the soundtrack to her film, Mahogany. So like in a way, Diana is not in conversation with the prevailing R&B tropes. She's almost so untouchable and so iconic. Right. That it's kind of all or nothing for her. It's This is what I mean about it. Either it's a number one hit or it's a flop. It's kind of right. like she's either got to go all the way and then they put all the promotional firepower. And, you know, let's be honest. This is the period of rampant payola and mm. money slipped under the table to get a DJ to right. play a record or cocaine under the table to get a DJ to play a record. Right. Um, and so you have to envision that in this period, Barry Gordy is like putting all his chips on Diana when he thinks he's got the goods. So with a touch right. me in the morning that Michael Masser record or do you know where you're going to for mahogany those are records where he's like fine let's do payola up the yin yang let's make this a hit whereas if it's not he's not even going to bother to sink the resources in yeah and i I have to imagine that clearly diana's celebrity in this period eclipses her track record as a that's right like that is correct in my mind i'm thinking to myself like oh diana had this kind of unmitigated run of hits from like 1964 to 1980 or whatever but it's not really true like you really look at these records as you said a lot of flaps and a lot of music that to me just feels kind of neither here nor there like I'm kind of like okay obviously she's lovely to listen to you know we've talked a lot about how she's not like the greatest necessarily like vocalist of all time but she is an incredibly trained professional utilizer of her voice like it's evident like her skill level with how she uses her voice is never short of thrilling to listen to but a lot of this music to me feels like kind of fuddy-duddy you know even in the context yes, I agree. of that is well put fuddy-duddy that is well put right which like maybe we would think okay yeah it was 1970 it seems fuddy-duddy to us now but even in the context of the music that was happening at that time i'm curious how diana was perceived in this sort of mid-70s period. Like, is she someone that kids are into? Is she a cool pop star at this period? Or is she sort of seen as a has-been? I think she's neither a has-been nor seen as a cool pop star. I think she is now becoming your mom's favorite pop star. Right, right. Which is dicey. because it, Dicey. It, she's part of the conversation. She's somewhere between Cher right. and Barbara on the level mm. of fame and variety show sort of Dick Cavett guest level of fame. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Diana's sort of an untouchable queen and everybody appreciates that she's a queen, but right. that doesn't necessarily mean that she's scoring banger hits. You know right. what I mean? Right. And I feel like this is very much the era where the sort of like outsized drag version of Diana gets very crystallized. Like when I was watching performances, like you really get the sort of grand dame, the very exaggerated outfits. I was like, this is like RuPaul was formulated during this era of Diana Roth. This is like where drag as we think of it today, like begins. Thank you. 
hurts, huh? <laughs> Thank you and welcome. Wow, I'm really thrilled to be here. It's been quite some time. I'm happy to see you again. Hi. Hi. <laughs> In the time that you've seen me, ladies and gentlemen, uh, sounds so formal saying ladies and gentlemen, doesn't it? But since I was here last, I've been doing lots of things. I didn't want you to think that I was just laying around. <laughs> or maybe I was. I have two children now. <laughs> Well, anyway, I wanted to tell you that I, I hate saying that because I get a little nervous because I haven't seen my doctor in a couple months. <laughs> I'd feel safer if I hadn't seen my husband in a couple months. <laughs> Anybody got any pickles or strawberry ice cream? Uh, no. Reach out and touch. I mean, she's the patron saint of drag. She's I the mean, patron saint of drag. And like, and it's really More than funny. Judy Garland, more than Barbara. Absolutely, like, absolutely. Diana, it begins and ends, with, for drag specifically, it begins and ends with Diana. Absolutely. And I mean, to his credit, RuPaul has constantly credited her as like his number one inspiration. But it's, it's, it's just fascinating because I just kept thinking, it was this, that, exactly what we were talking about earlier, sort of this dichotomy between her celebrity seeming so outsized and humongous and also this sort of just like not really having the hits to back it up. Like she's got her few that broke through. But overall, most of these records did not do much for me and clearly didn't do much for everybody else either. The other thing that was very interesting to me about these records is as I was getting at earlier with the sort of like singer-songwriter thing that's emerging here, mm -hmm. you never get to know her that much better on record. These records are not about getting to know Diana personally. It's always- They're not introspective records. Not introspective, very polished product. Mm -hmm but never sort of this feeling of like, you, you're, you're unpeeling any more layers to her. And so I had this one perception when I was going through the music. Then I watched Lady Sings the Blues, and mm. I was like, oh my God. I was literally blown away, not just by the fact that she is an extraordinary actress, which mm -hmm. she is, which like, mm -hmm. I guess maybe isn't surprising because she's such a charming personality, but, she was so unvarnished and raw and like letting it all hang out in this performance in a way. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Oh, baby, what you doing here? Yeah, I've been trying to get you on the phone. Oh, baby. Oh, I missed you so much. Oh, you look so good. Oh, baby. How'd you get here? Get your clothes off. <laughs> I like your style, but I can't say much for your time. Why don't we wait till we get out and get a nice hot bath? No. Whatever you say. Oh, my. Man, it's pretty. Well, so am I. We've been having a rough tour. Oh, oh but I'm so happy you're here. Now, this is all I'm going to do. And I want you to do the rest. Oh, oh. Ow! Oh, you're hurting me. Jesus. Come on, let's go. I know what you think. tour's over. I mean, when I said you here, I'm not taking you back home, so get your things, let's go. Wait a minute, I know what you're thinking, baby. I don't want to hear about it, just come on. I'm not going to. Oh! I mean, she's playing Billie Holiday. She is on heroin almost the entire film and doing a very raw rendition of what drug addiction is like. She's in a mental institution at one point hair fucked up, no makeup, drooling on herself. I mean, this is like, you know, actor's studio method acting, acting going on 
the total polar opposite of the glamour diva that she was in her musical career. Mm. I was really glad that I watched it because I would have had this entirely different perception of her in this period had I just engaged with the music. But for some reason, she was letting herself be a mess in this way that like really filled out her personality to me in a way that I never would have anticipated had I not watched the movie. And I thought that was just really interesting. I wondered kind of like how constrained she felt in her music, how much Barry Gordy potentially was with his sort of like maniacal focus on keeping her as palatable as humanly possible was maybe hindering her artistic instincts because clearly there was something in watching that movie that like makes you understand that like there was a part of her that wanted to be rawr there was a part of her that wanted to show you something less polished and it just never happens in the music in this period and i was just fascinated by that dichotomy having watched the movie I let's recommend give you check diana her full props she is nominated for an oscar for best actress yes. for that role in a big year for black actresses because one of her competitors is cecily tyson for sounder mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is the the oscars of 1972 that are given out in 73 neither right. of them wins she's also up against future dame maggie smith she's mm. up against Liv Ullman and the winner is Liza Minnelli speaking of gay icons for Cabaret for her Oscar for Cabaret richly deserved and uh, you know and kind of iconic that role so no no surprise that Diana doesn't get the prize but she's in the conversation the awards conversation for 72 and uh, importantly since we're talking about albums the Lady Sings the Blues album becomes Diana's first solo album to top yes. the Billboard album chart. Mm. And that's probably as much for, again, what we're talking about here, Diana as personality, as luminary, as yeah. star in the heavens. It's about that great performance. And there are no hits from no. Lady Sings the Blues. Right now, nor does she sound like Billie Holiday that much to me either. No, she really doesn't. <laughs> Thought we said goodbye last night. I tossed and turned until it seemed you had gone But here you are with the dawn it's not like Diana's version of my man is going right. to you know, become a top 40 hit, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but yet the album goes to number one anyway, because it's kind of like a signature moment for Diana. There's right. like, to go back to what you were saying before is like, I thought that she had this unbroken streak of hits. The hits she has in the seventies are shiny enough and big enough in a burst Right. And there were enough of them. There's like four right. or five moments in the 70s. She goes away for two or three years, but then she has at least one big, bright, yeah. shining supernova of a hit, whether it's Lady Sings the Blues with the Oscar or right. Do You Know Where You're Going To with Mahogany that kind of makes up for the fallow periods. She always finds a way back to the top. That was what I was getting at earlier. Like the tenacity and the drive to like yes. keep it going the hunger. is like... Oh my God. I mean, it's, you have to just bow at the feet of it. It's like the, the, what that takes to maintain that over so long. It's just like, even the greatest pop stars, like so many ones that we worship and hold on to such high esteem to keep that going is so difficult. I had so much respect for her, the way that she just kept plowing forward. I mean, she must have been exhausted. This woman released like 20 plus albums, like in under 20 years. It's unbelievable. The two questions I want to ask before we move into like, I think what is kind of like her last big wave of success that we sort of need to cover. Two questions. How are black music and white music functioning in this period? Because I know that there's still a lot of miscegenation going on. And how is Diana navigating that? And how is that maybe affecting some of these choices? Before, when you were asking me, who is she in conversation with? And I was saying she's more in conversation with Barbara Streisand than she is with Roberta Flack. 
Yes. Right? I once read an interview with Daryl Hall, of all people, where he called the 70s the most segregated decade of music I've ever lived through. Right, right. And he had a point. It's kind of like there was this pulling apart of black music and white music, especially in the wake of what had happened at the end of the 60s, the point you were making before about how the late 60s rock qua rock, meaning white guys with guitars, is the ascendant music, and it sort of sucks all the oxygen out of the room. Frankly, Mm. I often attribute this period for Diana where she only has occasional singles and her albums mostly don't do much. They don't go gold. They don't break into the top 10 as racially motivated because generally women and especially black women were not thought of as album artists the way white acts were. Mm. So where a Carole King can keep coming back with, by the way, Carole King had number one albums. Nobody talks about this after Tapestry. Music was a number one album. Rap Around Joy was a number one album. Right. You know, so it was possible to score huge hit albums, but black women in particular, Aretha Franklin had a rough go of it after Amazing Grace, Mm. which is this legendary album in 72, and it sells very well. And, you know, it's the bestseller in Aretha's career. Aretha's albums, even when she was scoring great hits, like Until You Come Back to Me or Call Me, the albums don't do very much and they kind of marketed as afterthoughts. Mm. So like black women in this period are really treated as kind of like an afterthought when it comes to album commerce, Mm. which partially I think explains why diana is so slept on in this period or where the albums feel phoned in because Mm -hmm. they don't they don't think that in the era where led zeppelin is topping the album chart or Mm. you know bachman turner overdrive or pick your second tier rock band (laughs) bad company they're not thinking that they're going to get a number one album out of diana ross the only reason they do get one out of lady sings the blues is because she's nominated for an oscar for that it's it's about the movie it's not about the hits so that's part of the dialogue going on here Mm. and that starts to change in the late 70s frankly donna summer right who comes along in 1975 76 starts to change that equation because the love to love you baby phenomenon is both a single phenomenon and an album phenomenon Disco in general is so good to the black female singer that it starts to change the script for Diana too. You know, and it's a fascinating bridge to our next topic. I was thinking about the recentering of black voices and black women that disco provides. It's like... Absolutely. Disco in some ways is picking up the legacy of Motown in that sense of like recentering black female voices in particular in popular music. Well, and now we, of course, have to talk about one of Diana Ross's most legendary number one hits, which is Love Hangover in 1976. So talk about Love Hangover. To me, Love Hangover is a deconstructed record much the way Ain't No Mountain High Enough is, in the sense that Diana wasn't so sure about it when she went into the studio. She wasn't sure she wanted to record a disco record. She wasn't sure she was suited for it. And this was right at the beginning of the disco movement. Not the very, very beginning, not 74, 75, but like it's still fairly early days. This is still a couple years before Saturday Night Fever. Right. This is many years before Bad Girls. Donna Summer has just started to break with Love to Love You Baby, but is not the juggernaut that she would become. So yes, early-ish, let's put it. Yes. 
And what's amazing about Love Hangover is that it's two records in one. Totally. It's this sexy <laughs> slow Mini jam. Mini Ripperton, I thought. Mini Ripperton crossed with yeah. Barry White, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about what Barry White was doing. Like, Barry White, you want to talk about proto-disco, right? Those Love right. Unlimited Orchestra records where he's talking, baby, over a beat, you know, for the right. first couple of minutes before yeah, he yeah, starts yeah. singing a note. Feels so Diana's effectively doing that at the beginning of Love Hangover. She is singing. She's not talking the way she's talking on Ain't No Mountain High Enough. But it's breathy Diana. It's sensual Diana. It's Mm -hmm. cooing Diana dating back to the Supremes. And then there's this kick up the dee 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 over. And suddenly Mm -hmm. the disco beat kicks in. And what's great is that Diana pivots. And it's not as if the change in her vocal is totally night and day. It's like a ramp up. It's like the plane is lifting off. And... Mm. I don't need no cure. I don't need yeah. no cure. I And it's this intoxicating record. It was one of the biggest hits of the summer of 1976. And it's one of Diana's signature hits. It's kind of like her one really big hit in the mid-70s period that is not a ballad. And it's it's almost anomalous in her catalog in the best sense. Well, you know what it does that I feel like really helps set up? Oddly enough, I mean, we're about to talk about her most successful period as a solo artist, which comes 20 years into her career. Very not common thing to happen. Correct. It's fun which is missing from so much of this 70s material to me like where is the fucking fun it was it's there's so much ac blandness going on on so many of these albums the record feels like a cutting loose it feels almost like she's giving you the full story of her letting go through the sound of the song going from this one song to this other song it's really a revelation i think in a sense even though she doesn't immediately move into the disco thing like she releases another record after that called Mm -hmm. baby it's me which was kind of another dud unfortunately another dud But it does lead us to the transitional linchpin and then the biggest record of her career. So in 1979, she releases this record called The Boss, which I feel like is a huge pivotal moment in her career. Can you talk about like how things change for her on The Boss? I mean, The Boss, Diana is really like grabbing at the brass ring and not just dabbling in disco. She's like kind of going all the way. What's also happened to disco since 76 when she records Love Hangover is disco has gotten more sophisticated, right? To go ahead and say their name because they start to become important on the next album. We're now in the chic era of disco. Right. Chic, both lowercase c chic and capital C chic. Good times. 
we're in the Studio 54 era of disco. Mm. And basically, the boss, which only goes to number 19 pop, but is a sizable hit, right. returns her to the top 40 at the very least, where she'd been locked out for like two, three years. Yeah, The boss is kind of her first, let's call it disco hit of the Studio 54 era. Mm. Right, because Love Hangover is from that first wave of disco where disco is still this kind of scrappy emerging from the underground movement. Now we're into the people are dressing up in suits and going to clubs era of disco. And the boss is just the first dip in the water for Diana in that era. It suggests how she winds up working with Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards on the next project when Chic are coming off of their massive wave of hits in 78 mm-hmm. and 79. This is when Diana has her signal moment. You know, it's fascinating. Obviously, looking back, this is more obvious to us than it might have been at the time. But she's the perfect disco queen for every reason we've been talking about so far. Totally. So, like, what's disco about, right? Like, it's about fun, joy. We talked about earlier, like, Diana's joy when she sings is one of her ultimate ace cards. And I feel like that's so suitable to disco. She's all glamour. Frivolity and sort of glamour is a huge part of her persona. That works so well. And the sort of light touch that she brings to all of her vocal performances. And and let's say it, a queenliness, a regality. Queenliness, you know? a regality, yes. And I'm curious, like, did she have an overt relationship to the gay community prior to this point? Or was it just sort of something that was hush-hush under the table about her? I think it was becoming clear. I mean, the fact that she has her Central Park concert to flash forward just a little bit in right. 1981, and she's yeah. already basically like singing to the, the gay audience. Yeah. She had to know. Do I know right. firsthand? No, but I have to imagine that didn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, no, I, I just felt like when I heard the boss, the song, I was just like, oh, like, thank God she is like embodying this particular trope of pop stardom at this moment. The boss is just filled with such joy and represents so many of the qualities that have made Diana so indelible throughout all of these different musical periods. I just cannot help but like smile ear to ear every minute that that song is playing. It's really one of my all-time favorites. So this kind of provides the jumping point for, I think what we could pretty much say is her most important record. Oh yeah, unquestionably. I mean, even including this- As an album, without question. There is no album, album qua album in Diana's catalog that is as important as the 1980 Diana album. Right. Basically produced and co-written with an asterisk by Mm -hmm. the men from Chic, Bernard Edwards and Nile Rodgers. I was reading a lot about this record and I think she was frustrated with where her career was at. She went to them. First of all, I know she was very frustrated with Motown and Barry Gordy. Her contract was ending with them. Their romantic relationship had ended. There was a sense, I think, explicitly from her that she wanted to break out from underneath his sort of shadow and guidance that she had been under for 20 years. That apparently was the inspiration. Aside from the drag queens dressing up as Diana Ross and Niall Rogers seeing them in the club and realizing what a huge part of gay culture she had become. Apparently, I'm Coming Out was also inspired by the fact that she really wanted to make a record that was about her breaking free of Motown and Barry Gordy. There's a new me coming out, and I just have to 
And then I believe the missive that she gave to Edwards and Rogers upon initially contracting them for the album was to quote unquote turn her music and sound upside down, which they took quite literally and spun into the album's maybe signature hit, Upside Down. One thing that really differentiates this record, aside from the fact that it is so beautifully produced, the music is so, like, it's consistently amazing. Every song is good, which is not something you can say on any other Diana album. There was a personal quality to this. Even though she didn't write any of these records, clearly they were trying to make music that spoke they to were her personal her. experience in a way that I feel like almost none of her music really ever had been to that point and is a very modern pop star thing to do in a way that sort of like potentially bridges the gap between the Diana-dominated sort of pre-modern pop star era and the era that's about to follow exactly after this. It's like they landed on some sort of formula here that wasn't preordained, that like really worked. Well, and let's give Diana her props on this record because it's often said to flash ahead to the 21st century. There are people who get cynical about Beyonce and say, well, does she really write? Does she really produce? And I always fire back with, well, if you pay attention to the army of participants, in a Beyonce record, it's clear that she is the auteur of that record. Editor-in-chief. The editor-in-chief, the auteur, the way a film director is the auteur of a film, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And to a large extent, Diana Ross is the auteur, even more than Edwards and Rogers of this record in this sense, not just that it's channeling phrases like upside down, right? but the fact that Rogers and Edwards, and I say this with love because Sheik are one of my all-time favorite groups and their production work is stellar. Yes. They have a pretty heavy hand in everything they've worked on prior to this. For example, one album they had a huge hand in in 1979 before they got to Diane is the Sister Sledge album, which produces We Are Family. That Sister Sledge album has perhaps the greatest disco song of all time, Thinking of You. Thinking of You. Thinking of You is one of my favorite songs of all time. I'm thinking of you and the things you do to me. That album is wall-to-wall bangers. But here's the thing. On all those Sister Sledge records, including He's the Greatest Dancer, etc., these feel like extensions of what Nile Rodgers calls the chic universe of hits. They feel like chic records that are being sung by different vocalists. And in essence... Rogers and Edwards are brought in to do with Diana what they just done with Sister Sledge. And they try to do it. And let's give Diana her props. She can hear that it's not quite right. Right. And so it's Diana who motivates and says, I'm not happy with the way you've mixed my vocals and winds up re-recording the vocals on mm-hmm. most of the big hits. She brings in a veteran Motown engineer named Russ Tirana. He does so much with the recordings that he offers to share production credit with Edwards and Rogers. At one point, Rogers and Edwards were almost going to back down and let him have production credit on it because they felt so dejected. Yes. There was a bit of a panic, I think, because the burning of all those disco, what was that called? Disco demolition. 
Demolition Night had Disco happened. Demolition Night was summer of 79. Yeah, she was very worried about the fact that she was like literally diving headfirst into the genre at a moment when potentially it was exploding. It's funny because in just to digress slightly, but to place this album in a context, Disco Demolition Night is the summer of 79 and it basically helps kill the Bee Gees career as frontline artists. However, right. for the next year and a half, three of the biggest albums on the charts, Michael Jackson's Off the Wall, Mm-hmm. Diana Ross's Diana and Barbara Streisand's Guilty, which is produced right. by Barry Gibb, are all effectively disco albums. Mm-hmm that are tweaked just enough that they play into the 1980s. All three of these albums have this vibe that relies on disco production and disco songwriting, but somehow is modernized just enough to get past the disco sucks bias that is now sweeping through music and overtaking the charts. How are they doing that exactly? Like, what are, what are the tweaks? I mean, the tweaks in the case of Diana, it's kind of like the same syncopated funk and chicken scratch guitar Mm -hmm. that Niall is putting on all these records. That playing, that crisp playing, that sophisticated playing, Tony Thompson's drums. Bernard Edwards' legendary bass lines. That kind of gets them past the disco ghetto. Do you know what I mean? Where yes. Chic image-wise were tagged with disco and really never could escape it. Even though Chic actually, nobody remembers this, they kept recording right through like 1985. But Chic never really had hits again after 1980. Right. Whereas Diana could somehow sneak out from under that. And there's something about more than Michael Jackson's Off the Wall, which is its own thing. Yes. Diana and Barbara basically pull the same trick in 1980 where they take the best of disco and yet somehow their personages, their diva qualities outshine the downfall of disco. Everybody's trying to figure out this flip, this little tweak. Diana Ross somehow skates by because in a sense, you kept saying before, and I agree with you, that there's so much about Diana Ross that's like a disco diva. You'd think she would have had more disco hits. The fact mm-hmm. that she wasn't completely chained to disco probably helped Diana Ross at this moment because I do vividly remember being an eight, nine-year-old and being told by my cousins, oh, disco's not cool anymore. You're not supposed mm. to say a cool record is disco anymore. Wow. And put that off to racism, put that off to right. homophobia, put that off to whatever you want but it was happening in 1980 and somehow Diana Ross and Barbra Streisand kind of sneaked past that and in the case of Diana Ross it's because no matter what Russ Tirana did to the Diana album that chicken scratch guitar that is Niall's signature is still all over the record and the stellar songwriting I mean I'm coming out and Upside Down are just incredible records Upside Down in particular what a neat trick that record pulls off it feels like a 60s Motown record Mm. converted into a turn of the 80s post disco record do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. You can drop it into a Motown compilation alongside Supreme's hits and it somehow sounds like it fits. Even the way that the vocals are stacked, it almost sounds like a girl group. The upside right. down, you're yes. turning me, you're that. giving love. Exactly. And to me. Round and round, you're turning me. I say to me, you respectfully. Upside down, you're turning me, you're giving love instinct. 
I have to say, and this is a question I want to ask you as a chart expert, mm -hmm. it's so shocking in a modern context for a pop diva to have the biggest record of her career at this juncture of her career. It feels as though that would not be possible anymore. What is that about? I have some thoughts. I'm curious what yours are. I mean, this was something that wasn't that, I mean, it was uncommon, but not as uncommon as it is today. You have Cher in the 80s having some of her biggest hits and having her biggest hit in 1999 at age 50. You've got right. Madonna who was able to sustain hits into 2005, 25 years into her career. You've got Diana right. here, 20 years into her career, having the biggest songs of her career. I feel like that's, Something changed at a certain point that made that less feasible. I wonder if you have thoughts on what that is. I mean, ageism is definitely a problem. It's always been a problem. It, in a way, it's, you know, the prizing of youth and the fact that men, you know, Kanye West and Drake are both pushing 40 or in Kanye's case, over 40. And right. they can still kind of score hits. So there's some sexism involved there. But there's an eternal struggle with this. And I think in Diana's case in particular, to kind of rephrase something I just said a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. In a way, this was how her intermittent hit making in the 70s almost helped her. Think about mm. how do you summarize Diana Ross in the 70s? There's this MOR, middle of the road pop that's more Streisand than it is Roberta Flack. Right. There's this one shining proto-disco hit in 76 with Love Hangover. There's right. The Boss. There's her Oscar nomination for Lady Sings the Blues where she's basically playing a Mankay version of Billie Holiday. Right. You kind of can't put Diana into any one bucket during this mm -hmm. decade. Mm -hmm. And I think that explains why she beats the odds. Diana was born in 1944, I believe. So by now, like to your point, she's 36, 37, mm -hmm. which is for the record, no older than Drake is now. Exactly. But it's an age when you don't expect somebody to have the biggest hits of their career. And yet here Diana Ross is with Upside Down and I'm Coming Out and this multi-platinum album going to number two on the charts and solidifying her stardom. You know, I just think about Lady Gaga and Katy Perry today. They feel like it's over. Not over in the sense like they're all going to have long, fruitful careers where they make lots of money. And, you know, especially Gaga, I think, has a lot of roads forward for her career as a multi-format star. But in terms of dominating music charts, I cannot foresee a world where Katy Perry has a number one hit ever again in her career, no matter what she ever did. Gaga's a little different because Gaga managed to get a couple of number one hits, one yes. from the movie and the other from Chromatica because she teamed up with Ariana Grande. Exactly, but they all feel like they're buttressed by other things, as you were getting at right. with like Diana right. stuff. Not like just randomly putting out a solo record that happens to be the biggest record of... I, I just I can't see it happening in the Spotify era. One thing I thought about uh, when I was thinking about this is, did MTV change this? Because I wonder if... The emphasis on visuals, A, obviously the fetishization of youth is part of pop culture as far back as we can ever look, but there's something about the front and centerness of the visual aspect of music right. that potentially right. has shifted this for people. Whereas I wonder if these amazing songs on this Diana record were just able to kind of stand on their own because you weren't seeing her that much. Not that she looked like some old hag or anything, but no, just the fact great. that like, she looked incredible, but just the, the, the fact picture, that, like, the picture on the cover of the Diana album is one of the sexiest pictures she's ever incredible. taken. Incredible. But I think just in terms of like absorbing these as pop cultural phenomenon, you didn't have to focus on the fact of like, oh, there's Diana Ross. She's been around since 1962. She's old hat, whatever. You just were kind of hearing the songs more and they were just kind of able to stand on 
their own easier, I wonder. I mean, you have a point about MTV. Here's what's interesting. So this album comes out in the summer fall of 1980. All of these hits happen in late 1980, early 1981. MTV doesn't come online until August of 1981. So there's two issues with MTV. You point out the emphasis on the visual. Now, in theory, Diane is going to be okay on that score because at age 36, 37, she still looks amazing. Yes. But the problem with MTV in its first few years, as has been infamously noted, is it's racism. Mm. Until Michael Jackson in 1983, they're not playing anything by black artists. Right. So in a way, it's good that Diana scored her hits from the Diana album before MTV even existed because Mm. she wasn't going to get any help whatsoever. MTV was overtly programming itself for its first two years as quote, a rock station, which meant that their version of an iconic diva is Stevie Nicks. Mm. It's not Diana Ross. It's Pat Benatar, not Mm. Diana Ross. Mm. Those are the women that MTV is playing in its first two years. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I also just think like, in terms of just how bored we get so quickly, like looking at things, I feel like careers had a bigger opportunity to last longer in pop music in this era and even into the 90s i just feel like we've entered a period where culture moves so fast and we're so ready to throw things out for the next thing so quickly and there's so much content and there's so much turnover and there's so much focus on youth culture it's like we were talking about the foundations of the teenage focused pop culture movement in the late 50s and early 60s it's like now it's like with spotify dominating how charts are formulated and and youtube and tiktok and all of these things you see all these stars come and go much faster it feels like having a career like diana's a pop career that extends over maybe three decades is just doesn't feel it's harder feasible anymore it's harder and, it's yeah. definitely harder so she has this huge album maybe her biggest ever i often talk about how like the thing that separates tier one pop stars from tier two pop stars is the ability to reinvent your career and have it be as popular as previous eras and i feel like maybe this is her third or fourth time doing that which is Utterly remarkable. Utterly remarkable. So the 80s is when things start to kind of, I feel like, wind down in terms of her being like a centrist pop cultural force. They do, but not right away. Here's what's interesting. Yeah. Diana has one more, if not imperial phase, it's not as if she can get anything up the charts, but sort of money-making phase. It's this 81 to 83, 84 period. Right. She signs a new contract. She finally leaves Motown for RCA. Right. In 1981, 82. Yeah. Um, However, we shouldn't skip over one very big thing that probably wouldn't have happened if the Diana album hadn't hit the way it did. Yeah. Which is that in 1981, Diana Ross scores what is often forgotten is still her longest lasting number one hit of all time. The Lionel Richie duet, Endless (laughs) Love, which spends nine weeks at number one. Lionel Richie is kind of the up-and-coming superstar of the 80s. Everything he touches turns to gold. They're looking for a theme song to this cheesy TNA flick in 1981, Endless Love, and Lionel writes it and brings in Diana Ross, and Diana Ross and Lionel score the biggest hit of... I think either of their careers, I think even Lionel has never had as long a lasting number one hit as Endless Love. Not my favorite. Not my favorite either, uh, but it's an enormous, enormous record. And it's probably that one-two punch of right. the Diana album followed immediately by Endless Love gives the Diana the the juice to walk away for a multi-million dollar contract with RCA, yeah. which founders not right away. Like she manages to score some 
decent size hits like yeah uh, there's the, the her cover of why do fools fall in love which is a fascinating one which is like an 80s take on the proto motown sound Proto Motown, and I mean, Why Do Fools Fall in Love is a Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers right, right. the first time around. So it, in a way, it's even before Diana Supreme's era. Yeah. It's kind of a throwback at a moment when throwbacky stuff like that is doing particularly well on the charts. Right. It goes to number seven. She follows it immediately by the hit Mirror, Mirror, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, Good one. Peaks I like at, that one. Yeah, no, I like that one too. That peaks at number eight. following year she scores a top 10 hit with the now forgotten muscles no uh, muscles we got to take a minute on muscles the gayest song diana ever released in a slew of many <laughs> you, gay songs and the video you if right. you have not watched this video is the gayest thing i have ever seen in my life written and i won't say more about this by michael jackson i'm not yes. gonna i'm not gonna expand on that but i'm just gonna throw that fact out Muscles is one of the great novelty Diana songs of the 80s, I feel like. What a funny song. Diana's stardom is such that she can still score top 10 hits with records like Muscles as late as 82, 83. Um, Muscles is a fucking crazy song. It's a fucking crazy record. I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, But it is not her final top 10 hit. That does not arrive until 1985 with her tribute to her lost friend Marvin Gaye, Mm. who is, of course, infamously killed by his father in 1984. Mm. She records the Marvin tribute Missing You, which goes top 10 in early 1985. And to my great shock, that is Diana Ross's last top 10 hit. It's actually her last top 40 hit, at least on the pop side, which is remarkable. You know, you said earlier to me in the conversation that you find her career sputtering out to happen sort of suddenly. I feel the opposite. I feel like, how did she keep this shit going for so long? She had a lot of second, third, fourth wins that like are truly defying gravity to the point where it's like, by the time I got to this point in my listen through and just in my looking at all this stuff, I was like, all right, honey. Like I, you know, like you did. It, you did amazing. Like I don't yeah, know right. what else to say. Like you did. No, fucking when you amazing. put it that way, you have a point. So I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here. We certainly have. What a career! You know, normally at this point we talk about where these artists rank in the pop pantheon. I was talking to you a little bit off mic. I do not feel that this is a debatable topic. I feel like no. Diana Ross is possibly even in tier one amongst a rarefied group of people in tier one who are like absolutely foundational to what pop music is even more so than other foundational people who are in pop music. I mean, I ag- I agree with caveats. Yeah. You're a hundred percent right okay. with right. caveats. Caveat well, yeah. no, the caveats are these, and we've been saying them all along. I'm not going to bring up anything we haven't already discussed. Yeah. There are these weird fallow periods in her solo career. There's the fact that the Supremes shown very brightly 12 number one hits right. in just five years. Right. And then the minute Diana walks out, the group are not really big hit makers anymore. When you first came to me and asked 
you know, should we talk about Diana Ross or should we talk about the Supremes? I said, yeah. I think you have to talk about both. Right. Because the reason Diana Ross is, I agree with you, an unquestioned tier one, tippy top of tier one, yeah. is the sum total of the career, the longevity of it, the fact that she keeps coming back and you can't count her out. And even when she goes three, four years between top 40 hits in the 70s, she's indefatigable. You know what I mean? And she reinvents herself. That's what makes her tier one. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, one of the specific requirements I have in tier one is their name means something more than the sum of their hits. I mean, that exactly. Is, That's that what I mean by her. a caveat. Yes. yes. The caveats are that you can pick other artists that have longer strings of hits. If you leave the Supremes out of it, right. her string of solo hits is not actually not that, that impressive. Right. Not that re- not remarkable. Cher is like this too. I feel like Cher is similar in the sense that like she has maybe one number one hit in her entire career, I think, or maybe two. No, I, no. There are three in the early 70s, back to back to back. Gypsies, Tramps, and Themes, Dark Lady, right. and Halfbreed. <laughs> All of them vaguely offensive. Point, but, um, <laughs> point stands though that like given what an icon Cher is, but you're she, right. She yes. doesn't have the Madonna level of hit making that like correct you know what i mean like but there's no correct. question that Cher is also right next to diana in tier one right when you mow through these requirements it's like continuously relevant with 12 to 15 or likely more hits yes over multiple decades can be referred to mononymously obviously numerous distinct musical eras i think we've completely laid that out at least one successful major reinvention or overhaul that was as commercially successful as previous ones yes i think we've pointed to two to three to four maybe widely noted and long-lasting impact on the shape of the genre musically or otherwise without question with widely considered even by casual fans to be pillar of the genre yes generation or decade defining not just musically but as an entity image or icon absolutely yes nothing they could do extra musically or musically could change their position in the pantheon obviously there's nothing she could do nothing could happen at this point that would alter her her position in this pantheon as shown by the fact that she stops having hits after 1985 and it doesn't matter we'll consider her a queen forever right and she could still launch a massive tour people will come see her we're now what 30 years removed from her hits and she's just as venerated as she's ever been i have only seen diana ross live once it was in 2015 and it was the opening concert of the king's theater in brooklyn which is in my neighborhood in brooklyn and I mean, it was like a party, you know mm. what I mean? And you know, again, by this point, this woman had not had a hit in 30 yeah. years yeah. and it didn't matter because it she was all bangers. She still looks amazing. I mean, she also and she's, still And she looks incredible. amazing. She is the definition of star quality, life itself. You know, she to me, she stands in that lineage of like Marilyn Monroe. They just breathe and you're just like, I can't stop looking at you. You are just the most intoxicating presence I've ever been around. Like, I feel like she personifies that to me. One of the main people that personifies what the idea of star quality is. You know what I mean? And relevant enough to go on the MTV VMAs in the late 90s and jiggle... Jiggle uh, Lil' Kim's boob! Lil' Kim's boob. That was her biggest hit of the 90s. It kind of was. All right, so, Chris. Yes, sir. Last question before we finish this marathon recording session. Of course. What is a underrated Diana Ross song? Maybe something we haven't touched on yet that we could send the podcast out on. It's My House because I love that record. And it's not a big hit. That is my favorite underrated Diana quote unquote hit. All right, Chris Malampi, thank you so, so much for doing this with me. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. No, my pleasure. I hope this lived up to billing. (laughs) Oh, my God. That and more. That and more. All right, sir. (laughs) 
All right, y'all, that is Pop Pantheon, two-header on Diana Ross, an indisputable tier one icon. Welcome to the top. Not that you needed my approval, Diana Ross. The judgment is rendered. Thank you so much to Chris Malamphy. Wow. I mean, I, I just feel like I got a university-level education. He is just the best. I want to thank you all for listening to the podcast once again. Please don't forget to send all your questions about pop to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Leave some reviews and suggest who you want to hear and get your fave their episode in the near future. Follow us on social media at poppantheonpod. Follow me at DJLOUIEXIV. Join the Discord chat about Diana Ross and the Supremes on Monday, March 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out all the Spotify playlists. And guys, until I see you next time... Have a wonderful life. Love ya. Goodbye.